This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Me. And as you may have guessed, I am not Virginia Trioli. My name's Matt Preston and I'm jumping into this edition of the podcast because it's the final episode of the season and we're switching it up. So we'll be taking Virginia Trioli's seven set questions and asking them of Virginia herself. Virginia, welcome. You seem a little bit nervous. I'm totally flustered. My heart's beating like a bird under a blanket, I can tell you. It's, it's very Why? worrying. Why? <laughs> uh, I went specifically into this line of work so I didn't have to answer questions, Matt. <laughs> yes. We can be as ridiculous, we can be as dark, we can go wherever you want to go. It's, yep. uh, I, I believe I've got, I've got the, the letter here you send out to, um, to, to all the interviews. Uh, trust me. I'm not here to poke fun, but I'm certainly here to have a wonderful conversation. Um, That's true. Uh-oh. <laughs> there she goes. There, there, go, oh, there, go, there go the questions. And here come the other questions. That oh, I dear. Yeah. Virginia, because I like to keep you in your, your toes. Are we not asking the questions? Well, I don't know. We might do. <laughs> oh, I, I, I just like to keep you just a little bit unstable. Don't stare through the glass for protection. I'm giving, I'm giving dagger stares at my producers. There's none like, here. What? Now, Virginia Trioli. <sighs> yes. You never know it but I. I. I thought about this a long time. I think about it all the time every time I ask uh, my um, interviewees the question and... The, the idea for this question is to actually give the lie. We to just the, want the answer, Virginia. The, we, the don't, we don't need to know the background. You're not a politician, <laughs> no. just the answer. No, but it's to give to the lie of the public face. And I thought, well, you've got to say something about, um, about where, you know, who you really are. And you'd never know it, but I worry about absolutely everything. I live in an agony of worry. You know that, um, that parlour game of, you know, describe yourself in three words? For me, one of those three words would have to be anxious. So, is this? Are you a victim of imposter syndrome? No, no, no. It's no? not that. No, it's not. It's not that. You, you know, you know, you're obviously very good. I, mean, I, I can do. I can do my yeah. job. That's fine. No, it's not about that. Although I do worry about a thousand aspects of my job, I do just live up in my head, and I have. You know those magic eye pictures. Mm. You know where yeah, you yeah. pull your and, yep. and it's three D. That's basically my brain is sort of like a three D version of la interlocking layers of worries and concerns. I I'm worrying about what's going on at home. I'm worrying about my son. I'm worrying about the show. I'm worrying about the producers. I'm worrying about what's going on. I'm just in an ecstasy of worry. I mean, at a certain point, I probably should go and see a doctor and see if I do have an anxiety condition, but, but it is a constant state for me. But is an anxiety something that's damaging or is it something that actually drives you to get here at 5.30 to do your research, to, it, it's a good, to, to be no, overprepared? That's a good question because I think sometimes it is damaging. I think mm. sometimes it just, you end up second-guessing and third-guessing yourself and also you live in an agonising way that I know that other people don't. I mean, I remember saying to a, to a friend once that I was, you know, going back over something that I'd, uh, that I'd done and I really regretted it. And they said to me, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on, it, it's done. Why are we even talking about this? Mm. That's in the past. And the look on, on his face was, uh, I was, it was immediately gave me the impression of, oh, that's what that looks like when you don't live in this 3D land mm. of worry. You actually, there is another way of being. And that is quite unfamiliar to me because the, the worries are multi-layered and they are constant. So does, you may not know it, but that's what it is. Does the fact that you're someone who's very close to you run the um, RMIT 
ABC fact check and RMIT <laughs> fact lab. Does does that does that does that worry come in there? Do, do you worry that Russell's going to ring you and go, "Just checked your radio show. Here's where you got it wrong." No, that's actually uh, one of the key answers to my worries <laughs> is the fact that he's there. And I, I've got to tell you, and here I'm telling all the secrets. There have been moments where I'm mid broadcast and I will text him and go, "Darling." It was 16 million, wasn't it? Not 30 million, and, mm. and I'll get the red. No, no, no. The and I mean, we call him the fifth producer. He has been, he's been my my um, blue pen. You know, the editor through all the rubbish lines ever since I met him when he was my editor. Sure. And um, it was one of those office romances that has bloomed into a wonderful marriage. So no, he's my absolute rock. The fork in the road I almost took was. Well, this is interesting because I was reflecting last night that my life could have gone really in a completely different direction. I wouldn't be here in Melbourne. I wouldn't be working in radio. Um, I could be tremendously wealthy, actually, if I took this the fork in this road. When I was asked to move to Sydney and to present mornings on ABC mm. Radio 702 in Sydney, and Sydney's a, is, genuinely is a really different place, a very strange place, and you arrive in town with, you know, a bit of fanfare and a bit of media kerfuffle about you, and everyone in town wants to know who the new sure. gal is, right? You'd know, you'd know this. Yeah. And I was almost immediately, just after a few months, taken out to lunch at a famous place in Sydney called Bistro Moncur, where all the movers and shakers are, and uh, by John Westacott, who was trying to hire me over to 60 Minutes. And you didn't go. Why not? I didn't go because um, that was our first lunch. And during the lunch, David Leckie actually strolled over and loomed over us, very right. tall man, and, and said, oh, Jesus lads, it's a bit early to start hitting on her, isn't it? Because I'd, you know, just been in town a few minutes and I thought, oh, no, it was it was such... Maybe not the job for me, It was thought. such a Sydney moment, you know, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then I met with him later on to talk further and he said, you need to know that if you do this job, your head won't be on your own pillow for 90% of the year. Mm. And I said to him, well... Sorry, I like my home. I love my husband. Sure. I love my life and I'm not doing that. And so I said no. And, and you, do you regret that now, looking at where you are? No, I, I don't regret that at all. Because if it had meant being away from him and being mm. away from, from the person I love most and the family that I have and, and my friends, no. I mean, I can see why it's a tremendously exciting job and, gee, they pay well. But, uh, but no. I always. I always ring someone about whom I've had a dream. All my life, I, I have dreams that are directed by Martin Scorsese and scripted <laughs> by Louis Bunuel, and they are, they are cast amazingly, they are shot beautifully, they have multi-level scripts and subplots. They're fabulous. I mean, I wish I could make movies like my, my mm. subconscious makes dreams. But inevitably, someone you know will pop up in that dream. And I don't believe in dreams having meanings, meanings, but I do believe in the feeling that the dream leaves you with. And so if you wake up feeling worried or you wake up feeling happy or you wake up feeling moved or, or concerned, then I follow that feeling and I will always reach out and call that person or text that person. I won't necessarily say I had a dream about you, but I'll just say hi. And inevitably, there's a reason. Something, something will happen in that conversation that will indicate to me, right, it was good that you made contact. Do you feel you're a spiritual person? I don't, th I don't think I am, no, I, I wouldn't say that, although I have a very 
strong um, fellow feeling with people who are spiritual mm-hmm. and uh, I was raised Catholic and I've known some some very progressive, thoughtful, informed, intelligent Catholics and uh, and those thinkers and those writers I've always been attracted to and I enjoy their company and uh, and we both, we all, you know, between us have an understanding, if not of, for me, of the hereafter and of there being a higher being, of the importance of, of fellowship here on earth and so that's always meant a great deal to me. So it's not so much a spiritual thing or even an insightful thing but I, but I do absolutely believe in the unconscious sure. and in the power of that and so if that's a part of me trying to tap into it and teach me something or connect me back to people, then I'll take it. I never. I never sleep under a doona. Thank you. That's good. Doonas are the devil. Doonas are awful. Why? They're too hot. Can I, I, I'm not an expert in this, but can I just suggest to anyone who, <laughs> stop laughing, Matt, to anyone who has sleeping issues, put the doona in the corner, get yourself a blanket and sleep under the blanket. It'll feel too cool at first. You'll get used to it after a couple of nights. Come back to me and tell me if your sleep has improved. Some of the best advice I ever got was set your shower cooler than you think it should be. Your skin will thank you for not Mm. being blasted by heat and sleep cooler than you think you should and you will sleep better. I've had moments where I've been on, you know, uh, location, uh, on on trips for covering stories, say, for The Age or the ABC. You get to the motel, it's only a doona. I will sleep under piles of my clothing, under my jacket and my coat and my jumper on top of the sheet because okay, I, I will not sleep under that doona. I think that I think we know too much there. I think, <laughs> I think this, this segment has gone exactly where it's supposed to do. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. The time I got it terribly wrong was? I think one time I got it terribly wrong was when uh, after I met Russell and I fell in love with him and he has three beautiful children from um, his marriage to Wendy and I just assumed that it would be a terrible thing for me to bring a new child into this family. I thought they've you know, gone through divorce, they've gone through enough and it would make them feel very uncertain and insecure. And I very, very, very much wanted one. And so I put it off and put it off and the feeling, of course, just grew and grew and became bigger and bigger. And I remember one day talking about that with a friend and saying, you know, that um, I, I didn't think I could do this to them. And, he, and she said, why? She said, no one ever hates a baby. Mm. And it was such a simple, devastating thing to say to me. And I thought, I think I've got this terribly wrong. And um, I went and spoke to Russell and um, it took a very, very long time. It was a very hard road, as people might know. And I did all those things that you do when you go through IVF and things that you can't even imagine uh, in order to, to win the wonderful Addison that I have. But I think that was a mistake. And I think it wasn't having enough faith in the humanity of my beautiful um, stepchildren. I never call them my stepchildren. They're my Tim and my Daniel and my Rebecca. And they are just the most gorgeous big sister and big brothers to Addison. A question without notice, and I'm going to ask this question because when I did this segment with you and you asked me, I thought it was an incredibly powerful question to ask and elicited, a, a, I thought, an, an interesting response from me. I hope it does the same with you. When was the last time you cried? <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> the day before. The day before that. I, I cry. I cry so easily. Um, have I always cried easily? Uh, maybe not so much. No, I think I think time and age does that to you. But I I feel things very very strongly. And if you just scratch the surface, there are always some kind of tears there. Th- there's always a great deal to be uh, 
worried about, and that's mm. where we started the conversation. There's always a great deal to be sorrowful about, and there's always a great deal that affects me strongly. It, they're not always tears of sorrow. On this program, we, we're, we're in tears often out of joy and out of triumph, uh, as well as being really moved by by the genuine humanity of some of the people to whom we speak. So they're not always those kind of tears. But if you want to cry, honey, I'm your girl. It's a small thing, but I'm still so proud that I... It is a small thing, but I'm proud that after I did that terrible thing on air where I twirled my finger beside my ear at something that... Barnaby Joyce had said on ABC News Breakfast, I got off here, I walked straight to the phone, I called him and I apologised. I got through to him almost immediately. I told him exactly what had happened. I didn't fudge it. Uh, and then, you know, may as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb. I went on and explained, you know, why mm -hmm. I had done that in that moment. I didn't try and pretend and say, oh, it was just her and, you know, if you were offended and that kind of thing. I completely apologised to his credit. Uh, he said words to the effect of, yeah, look, you know, that's fine. I don't often make sense myself, which was more self-deprecating than he needed to be in the moment. Um, and all hell broke loose and the world fell in, in on me. And, um, you know, to some extent has never stopped falling in, in over that massive um, mistake. But I'm really proud that I did that and that I didn't put it off to anybody else or that I didn't, you know, try and duck out from, from that phone call. And, and it is a small thing because it would be the least thing, right, that you'd expect on, of someone who did that. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that I did. It's, it, it gives me, when I think about it, in that worrying mind of mine, it, it gives me a, a moment of sort of self-respect in a moment that otherwise deeply disappoints me. Mm. The presence of TV has been a constant in your life, along with radio. Mm. I remember when you came back to the ABC, you came back to this show, I think I came in very early on, and maybe even the first day, and you seemed to be so happy and so released to be off the television. Is radio your happy place? It is my happy place. Although I, I love all those places. I mean, this is the strange thing about me, that I, I, I really love TV. I love writing as well, and that was sort of the, where I first started. But... I do love radio. And I remember, you know, saying back in the early days when I was first asked to try out here to fill in on drive 120 years ago. And I remember saying to someone, it felt like slipping on an old jacket, but it was a jacket I'd never put on before. How is it that, that it could fit me and feel so comfortable? So it really is a, a happy place because there still is nothing like that moment. Everyone is listening live, the messages come in, and that is the moment that you're after. Someone saying, I had to pull over to the side of the road. I was sitting there in the garage, the groceries were melting in the boot, I couldn't get out of the car. And I know that's their moments that you, you know, reach for as well. Mm. But they are, they are meaningful and they are connecting and that's something that that I'm always craving in my life is that sort of connective tissue and those threads that you create that actually make you feel more anchored to your society to where you live to your family to your friends to your workplace and each day it's another thread that's made that's that's woven into the fabric and it, it just gives me a really strong feeling of connectedness and that's one of the few things actually Matt that eases that worried mind is that strong sense of being connected mm -hmm. that I'm not floating free that I'm grounded in something that I have a place to be that I belong and that that's very meaningful to me. There are really no other jobs that I can think of where while you're doing the job constant commentary comes in <laughs> 
on the text line. You know, if you do TV, it doesn't happen. If you do theatre, you've got to wait a day for the review. If you run a restaurant, you've got to wait a day for the, a week for the review. But doing this, that constant commentary is here. But how do you deal in the middle of a show, and it's mm. a stressful environment, especially the show that you do, how do you deal with, with something coming through that, that gets you? Because sometimes, most of the time, you're, you're a grown-up, you, mm. it's water, you know, water under the bridge, mm. but sometimes they're going to be those ones that are just going to niggle you. How do you deal with that? Look, that, that's a good question, and it takes you as it finds you. You know, I mean, we are living, breathing human beings like everyone listening to it who had a bad night, uh, who had an argument with their husband, who forgot to buy the milk for breakfast, whatever, struggling to pay the gas bill. Uh, And so sitting in that chair, you're still that person. But of course, you have a role and a paid role to perform. But nonetheless, that criticism will take you as it finds you. So if you are feeling terribly vulnerable that morning, it will open up a chasm in me sometimes and I will have to work very, very hard to redirect my attention to where it needs to go. There have been times when I've turned that text line off um, because sometimes it's just a little too hard to deal with when the pile-on is really on. Um, But I'm a very, very big believer in taking the criticism as well. uh, an editor for whom I didn't get to work at the age, but who my husband did, just used to have that old saw. I know it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason, which is if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. You know, we have the most privileged job in the world of having the absolute effrontery to be able to pick up the phone and ring anyone and say, please come on sh- my show and ask a series, answer a series of really impertinent questions mm. and don't complain about it. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, if you're going to take on that role and if you're going to sit here and, and not commentate on the news, but certainly have uh, a big microphone that amplifies your reflections on the news, then you'd be better be prepared to cop it. Mm-hmm. There is a projection that goes on onto me that, of course, I don't understand because while someone listening to me thinks they know exactly what's going through my head, they don't. There's a big part of this job that still doesn't make sense to people, which is that this is a, an accountability job. They are accountability interviews. Mm-hmm. And it is sometimes the person that you love and you barrack for. And sometimes it's the person that you absolutely hate and wish was out of public office. But I'm going to do with them the same accountability interview. And I am not responsible for championing them, championing their policies. So that's, in this day and age, it's a bit weird to say that, but it actually seems to be a little misunderstood. I know where it comes from. And I know that we, the media, have let people down. We've been opaque about our sources. We've not apologised where we should have. And I know that the Murdoch media has played a massive role in creating that disenchantment and that lack of faith. So I totally own that. And sometimes the criticism is warranted. I'll take that on board and I'll reflect on it and I'll change accordingly. But sometimes you also just have to say... That's just how that goes. We live in a time when the media has become much more about preaching to the choir rather than being yes. an, an open an open book where you, yeah. where you address all sides. Is that something that you fight against? I can't stand it. And, and I see it and I hear it and I read it all the time. And the preaching to the choir or the drumming up your supporters mm. or playing to the crowd drives me crazy. I really hate it. I hate it in um, political reporting. I think it's lazy. I think it's easy. Mm. And I actually think it it helps um, uh, increase the divisiveness that's going on right now. I think you have to sit in that chair and you've got to be brave. You've got to be brave enough to to cop it when you know that you're about to ask a dreadfully unpopular question. But the the playing to the crowd, I think, is dangerous. Mm. I think it's history has shown 
that it's always been dangerous, whether it's done by a media outlet or whether it's done by a political leader. And I, I, I won't do it. My secret pleasure <laughs> is... Or my guilty pleasure. That's well, the question well, as well. Well, I, I don't think any pleasure is guilty unless it's, unless it's well, hurting I someone else. I well, really? You talk to someone well, who's... What? I'm, what? Ri- I'm riven by guilt. You well, know, raised Catholic, of Catholic course I am. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> can, I, 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 I want to, can I do a, like a quick fire yeah, on this? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, because I, I, I couldn't It's your choose. show after all. I mean, at the end of the day. <laughs> it would have to include a, you know, a sneaky rewatch of the Philadelphia story. Yeah. Or a sneaky rewatch of Casino Royale. No guilt there in any of those. Um, you know, well, I've, got a, I've got a hike because, you know, my husband will say, not again. Not mm. Casino Royale again. Right. But I'll do Philadelphia story in the middle of the day when he's not watching. Um, a bag of steamed dim sims with soy sauce eaten in the front seat of the car when it's only me there but they have to be bought from a proper old-fashioned fish and chip shop with the the big jar of pickled onions yes. on the counter uh, a reread of tina brown's diana because it's trollope and samuel peeps and emily bronte all rolled into one i love that book but i think the ultimate secret pleasure because it is secret is where if we're on summer holidays and we're lucky enough to be near a beach i will secretly creep out of the house just at that magic hour and if it's an overcast warm day where the sea disappears into the sky and you can't tell the horizon mm. and I will slip down to a beach and I will have the beach to myself and I'll dive into that water and just streak out towards the high, the skyline all on my own in that beautiful body temperature air. And that is just a moment of grace that I look for every single summer holiday. And that's just a, a glorious pleasure that I hope I always get to enjoy. And the anxiety disappears at that point? It goes. That's where it goes. You Don't Know Me is presented by me, Virginia Trioli, produced by Kelsey Rotino, Jules Hay and Shelley Hadfield, with thanks to Katrina Palmer. Audio production by Ross Kay. And that's the final episode for 2022 of You Don't Know Me. Thank you to Matt Preston for asking all those uncomfortable questions of me. And a big thank you to you. Thank you so much for downloading, for listening and for sharing it with your friends. This podcast only exists because you're there at the other end listening. So thank you for that. All 12 episodes are available now on the ABC Listen app, just in time for those long summer road trips. Thanks for listening. Got a minute? Dip into StoryStream for quick, easy, real stories from across the country. I was only 11. Apparently I was qualified to be the translator. When you're part of a team, you do it because you love it. Even now, I just get a little bit giggly thinking about it. Oh, it's just so exciting. Continuous, skippable Australian stories, exclusive to the ABC Listen app. I was going to say something else then, but anyway. <laughs> Bleep. Look for StoryStream on the home screen of the ABC Listen app.